The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. This is Christopher Reynaga, writer and director of Point Mystic. Point Mystic presents itself as a long-running radio show named after a mythical place that explores stories behind the magic, mystery, and the unexplained. A journalistic This American Life, or Radiolab, in search of the supernatural. However, this is not the whole truth. Our showcase episode for you today is part of our story that reveals that the mythical place Point Mystic actually exists. A legendary place where a lighthouse watches over the treacherous reefs of all other worlds. Point Mystic the audio drama is the story of the community that is called to this place. A town of people who watch over and protect each other. Who have each been called here for a mysterious purpose. Point Mystic is incredibly proud to receive several Audioverse Award nominations this year, including Best Audio Play Production, Best Writing, and Best Direction. But there are two nominations that we are especially proud of. Performance of a role in an ensemble cast for an audio play for our actors Anita Basiglio, who plays Lily, and Chris Plowden, who plays Tristan. This is Point Mystic, Season 2, Episode 11, Homecoming, written and directed by myself and featuring the acting talents of Anita Basiglio and Chris Plowden. I'm Christopher Reynaga. Thank you for listening. What did, what did you know about the lighthouse? I, I didn't know it was a lighthouse. I, I didn't know if it existed or what exactly the light was. All I knew was that it was a place that would, that would be safe. That it was a point of light in all of this darkness. Or at least a point to go before the rest of the world became dark. I'm Christopher Reynaga, and this is Point Mystic. Each episode, we speak about stories behind the myths and legends, the unexplained, the magical. This is the final part of our story of how Lily and Tristan found their way to Point Mystic. The revelation that this mythical place and its lighthouse actually exists, and that as legends suggest, it is indeed a place that seems to connect to all other worlds. Here, the city of gold, Atlantis, the lost city, all these other places that seem too magical, too mystical to be true. That's how Point Mystic sounded to me. Hoping to have nothing left, nowhere else to go. Why not take a chance?
those things, those widows. They didn't come that night. They came the night that we started running out of food and started running out of light and resources. The night we knew that we had to get out. Tristan and his friends had not seen the monstrous widow since they found the ruins of his Uncle Bobby's house two days before. Neither had they seen any living people. Jeff had walked to town with his hiking bag for supplies. Kim had sifted through the burnt remains of the house, and Tristan had kept watch on the sea, hoping to catch sight of his uncle's sailboat. The rumors Tristan had heard about Point Mystic came back to him while he stood at the open doors of the boathouse, scanning the seas with a pair of binoculars he'd found hanging on the wall. That it was the last safe place. That you could get there by sea. That you would sing a children's nursery rhyme that would somehow guide your way to it. Tristan didn't believe it. But he wanted to believe his uncle was alive and out there somewhere, searching for it, and still watching the shore for his family. Jeff came back as the evening approached, his hiking bag still empty. The nearby town was mostly gone, he said, burnt to the ground by the same fire that took most of the coastal woods and Uncle Bobby's house. There was nothing left but ransacked ruins. Kim had found some blackened canned food in the remains of the house. What little she found, she lined up next to the stone fire pit on the shore, near the foot of the dock. A small tin of sardines by the shape of it. A murky bottle of canned peaches. A single, miraculously untouched Hershey bar that Kim had found beside the fire ring. There was enough for one small meal, and this night they would have to eat it cold. Tristan had kept his paperback copy of Stardust, but there was nothing left to burn it as kindling for. They had worked through all of the draggable charred wood from the surrounding land and flammable junk from the boathouse. There was no fire left to keep the widows at bay. So Jeff and Kim and I were debating. It's like, we either need to run or we need to come up with another plan. And Jeff gets the bright idea that we should burn the only thing that can get us out of here, which is the rowboat. The rowboat was the old dinghy from the homecoming that hung in the rafters of the boathouse. The name painted across the stern in the neat red letters of his uncle's hand. Tristan remembered sitting in that boat with Uncle Bobby when he was very young, rowing out to where the big sailboat was anchored against the sunset, trying not to be scared of the waves rolling into the bay. Uncle Bobby talking calmly as his big hand swung the oars through the swell. You love the water. You just need to let her get to know you. And in that moment, the water reached out to Tristan. Looking back, it was such a small thing, just a wave slapping hard against them in a spectacular spray. 
but it caught Tristan open-mouthed, and Tristan sprang up to get away, and went tumbling into the black. The rowboat in the rafters was an old-fashioned thing, long and heavy and not quick to turn around if someone needed saving. Uncle Bobby had replaced it with a sleek aluminum dinghy with a fast little outboard, but he could never get Tristan into it. And the old wooden one had lived in the rafters of the boathouse ever since. Tristan still couldn't imagine getting into it, but he knew that the water was the last safe place they could get away to if the widows came. I wanted to burn the rowboat, but it was the only thing left in the boathouse we hadn't burned. The dinghy for my uncle's sailboat. It had oars, but no sail, so it was like... like oars with no sail, so it couldn't go very fast. But I didn't want to burn it. I mean, because if we had burned it, that would have been it. We'd only have enough fuel to keep them away for a little bit. We needed to get in the boat and get out. Unable to stand the arguing, Kim stormed off down the dock, yelling to both of them that she was going to cook dinner. With what fire, shouted Jeff. Kim, please come back, called Tristan. But before he could follow, Jeff pulled out his knife and started cutting down the boat. And he's lowering it down from the rafters, and I'm hitting him in the shoulders like, dude, you can't do this. And he's insistent. I was like, no, I'll just take it down, and we can burn it, it'll keep him away. And after all the time that we're arguing, we start hearing Kim. We weren't paying attention to Kim. She starts screaming. Tristan ran to the door of the boathouse and looked to the shore. A fog had been creeping over the bay while they had argued, and though the sun had not set, it was completely hidden. He could only see as far as the shoreline. And on the shore, Kim was yelling Tristan's name. She raised the black Beretta pistol that he had given her, pointed it at something in the fog, and shot once. It was the only shot she fired. A slender black leg rose out of the fog and struck her down, and then the widow was upon her. Tristan could not describe what happened next without breaking down, but it is indelible in his mind. The terror he saw in Kim's eyes as she was lifted up, the slow-motion clarity of the widow itself, spindly black legs arcing everywhere, waving overhead like feelers, tapping the ground rhythmically, caressing Kim as she screamed. It drew her into its jet-black center and devoured her. Jeff pushed past Tristan and saw the widow standing there, Kim's screams echoing from within it, as if it was the widow that was screaming to them. Jeff flew into a rage. He bellowed. He threw the knife he'd been using like an action hero in a movie. It splashed into the water a dozen feet from the widow which did not move. But the fog along the shore began to swarm with the black shapes, 
of countless other widows. Jeff, we need to go. We can't do anything about her. We need to get out right now. Tristan ran back into the boathouse. The boat was lined with its nose on the floor, its rear still tied to the rafters. Tristan yanked on the rope holding it up, but it was tied to a peg above and would not slip loose. In desperation, he shoved the boat with his body, sliding it over the edge of the doors toward the water. Tristan threw his body weight against it, feeling vertigo as he looked into the dark water beyond. Then the rope slipped free, and the rowboat splashed spectacularly into the water. I get the boat out to the water, and he's trying to set the boathouse on fire with a big lighter and try to pull him along with me because that's not going to work. We don't have time. They've already got Kim. They're already here. We have to go. And But Jeff would not go. The sound of Kim's screaming grew louder. Jeff stood in the door to the dock and watched the widow's slow approach with the same look in his eyes that Tristan had seen when Jeff threw the Molotov cocktail back in the Palms Casino. Jeff gave a manic, tired grin and said, You get going, Tristan. I got this. And he flicked the Bic lighter in his hand and dropped it into the jumble of life jackets he'd been piling near the door. They bloomed into flames so fast it took Tristan's breath away. And with a whiff, he realized that they'd been slathered in boat fuel and motor oil. Tristan could hear the wave-like crest of hundreds of spindly legs tickling against the dock outside. Jeff picked up one of the flaming life preservers by its strap and walked out of the burning door frame to meet it. He's never very good at listening. Always felt that he knew better. I jump into the boat. Tristan almost didn't make the jump. The rowboat had drifted further than he expected in the time it had taken him to try to drag Jeff along. Fear flowed into him as he looked out over the long gap of dark water. But he sprinted hard for it and leapt. He crashed into the jumbled bottom of the rowboat, feeling the wood of the bench crack beneath him. The impact knocked the air out of him, and he laid among the tangled ropes, barely able to move. I can't do anything to save Kim. I can't do anything to save Jeff. in the boat why didn't he just fucking get in the boat with me all he had to do was get in he insisted on lighting lighting the damn boat house trying to keep them away we knew we didn't have time I knew I told him to get in the boat I know he should have followed me and he nothing. 
and all I can do is watch. And those screams, those horrifying screams, all I could do was watch and hear them scream. Above him was a sight that Tristan will never forget. The walls of the boathouse and the dock before it were engulfed in flame. Widows swarmed along the foggy shore, keeping their distance, except for one. The spindle-legged widow that killed Kim was standing over him on the boathouse roof, her voice still screaming from its inky depths. Now Jeff's screams had joined hers, and their voices echoed together in agony. The widow's spindly legs twitched as the fire crawled up the roof around it. I grab the only oar that I can see at the moment, and I begin to paddle slowly. And then it looks at me, and it jumps in the water right where I am, so I start trying to paddle and faster, but I only have one of the oars. I'm like, because the other or I can only I, I I don't know a whole lot about rowboating, but I'm pretty sure I need two of these and actually to get away. And so I'm looking around in the boat and this thing is coming. And so I'm searching, I'm searching, and I find another sitting like right behind me, and but I grab it, I stick it through the other ring, and I am paddling. And this thing is still coming, and I am paddling faster and faster and trying to push out the screams. Trying to push out their screams. Why didn't they come with me? Why didn't they follow? Why didn't they listen if they had... Just don't time to think about that right now. Because whatever this thing is, they weren't swimming before. I could swear they weren't swimming before, or if they were, I didn't know. I was in a desert. No idea, but I didn't think they would be that smart, and this thing is going fast. And I am paddling as fast as I possibly can, and I'm praying this thing doesn't catch up with me. Because there's nothing I can do at this point. The widow swam awkwardly through the waves, but it was gaining on him, slicing the water with hundreds of legs. As it approached, it sped up in fury or desperation. The next oncoming wave pushed Tristan back toward it, and the sharp black legs reached out and scratched along the rear of the boat. One of the flailing legs lunged forward, slicing through his shirt and the flesh of his chest. A wave of pain and sadness pierced Tristan so deeply that he almost passed out. But the ocean wave that had pushed him toward the widow now struck the monster, washing it further away from him. And I finally get some kind of a break because a wave actually starts taking me with it and gives me a little bit of this distance and I can no longer hear the swimming of whatever... fucking widow the things I couldn't hear it anymore and so I'm finally finally getting some distance and I'm swimming away
this tide, it, it, it takes me out past the bay, out past the fog, until all I could see is stars and no more land. Stars, lights like the fireflies that I grew up with, safety. God, they seem to shine brighter than I've ever seen it before. So this the song it's it seems ridiculous, but if you if you sing the song and you're sailing, supposedly it'll help guide you and get to this light at the end of the world. It, which it sounds ridiculous to me because I don't even know how to sail. I barely know how to swim. Unbelievable, but hell, what have I got to lose? So I sing. And I rode and I watched the stars because I I didn't know what else to do. I kept singing. And the sun started coming up. And I started going again. I don't know how long I was out there, how long I was rowing. It seemed like it was forever. Tristan does not remember this part of his journey well. He hung the compass around the neck of his bloody shirt and kept his heading west like his dream. Sometimes he rowed and sometimes he drifted. Sometimes he sang the strange nursery rhyme, and sometimes his voice could only whisper. Once, when he could only lay in the boat aching and empty, he became certain he could hear the widow still swimming relentlessly for him. Unable to sit up, he sang louder, trying to drown out the approaching sound, the sound of hundreds of legs splashing through the water, hammering the waves so close that he began to feel the splash. Tristan's voice cracked, and the song died on his lips. He looked up, and the stars began to wink out, as the sky above filled with something darker than the night. It was birds, he realized. Tristan remembers the sky filled with a thousand silent silhouettes of birds. The sky disappeared, and he was surrounded by brilliant white. And then, it was like a door had slammed shut, and the splashing sound of the widow was gone. Tristan hoped in that instant that the widow was dead, that the creature responsible for the deaths of his friends had drowned there in the sea. But it would not be the last time he saw such a creature. He and Lily would face a widow when they fell through the white door that seemed to lead back toward his world. A widow with a forest of sharp, spindly legs. And though there is no way to prove that the monster that killed Cam and Jeff was the same monster that chased Lily and him through the fog and into the burning radiance of the lighthouse, Tristan believes that it was. When Tristan again 
became aware of what was around him. He was back in the night, but not underneath stars. Tristan's boat was drifting in the waves of a storm. I'm sitting in the boat, I'm rowing, I have no idea where I'm going, and then a storm all of a sudden comes. And at this point, I've just kind of resolved, like, fuck it, whatever's getting ready to happen, happens. I have no, no control over anything anymore. When I fell out of the boat, I woke up here, in this bed, and Point Mystic. I didn't expect that I would ever, like, ever find this. And I never expected that I would wake up and the world would still be standing here. Like, nothing, like, nothing ever happened. And that's, cause, like, makes me so angry because I know it did. Like, I was there, I went through it, and I saw all the people being taken, I... My friends, my family that's there now, I try to call them, it's like they don't, they don't know who I am. It's like, makes me feel a little insane because I, were they not there? Did they not go through the same thing I did? I, how is this, how is this happening? And here it's, Seems like their world didn't end. But mine did. At this moment of the interview, Lily, who'd been quietly listening to his story, the way he'd listened to hers, sat down next to Tristan and took his hands into hers. But you're here now, and, and, and how could your world be over when, when you're here with, with me, and you're, you're here for a reason. You must be. I don't know why you're here. I, I don't know what the purpose of it all is, but you saved my life. You, you you made it possible for, for me to, to be here. You saved my life. Thank you. Thank you. When I was in that rowboat, I had no idea. I had... If you hadn't come along, I'm pretty sure I would have drowned. I wouldn't have made it out of the boat. And as much as I've lost, you coming along at least gives me some kind of hope. And I don't know why I survived. I don't know why I got out. I have no idea why no one knows who I am anymore. But I am here now. And if it's 
to help, if it's to make sure that no other people die, if it's to make sure that this world keeps existing, then I will do that. But I... But thank you. Whatever brought you to the boat at the time, thank you. Because I wouldn't be here without you. And I am so grateful that you came to save me. I didn't have any choice. I needed you somehow. I'm grateful for you being by my side and for you being here for me. I need you to help me get adjusted so I can survive here. I got you. I'm glad somebody does, because that rowboat sucked. <laughs> Some place was going to magically appear, why not? It seemed like a really good idea at the time. <sighs> creatures. <sighs> they appeared from somewhere. Maybe some hope appeared somewhere else. It must have. Because you're out of that. You're here. You appeared. Hmm. You've given me hope in so many ways. I'll remember that. So Lily, there's um there's still one question I have. Would you share with me about the um the detective that you have that that guides you, that that, that speaks to you? Uh, I mean I, I don't I don't really know um, it I mean they don't they don't tell you who your transplants come from so I'm I'm not sure at all but it's like I guess when I was a kid I just you know how, like, Jiminy Cricket is a voice inside somebody's head that tells them how to do right and wrong and stuff? Well, like, that that's thats what the voice is. It's, it's yeah. It's a, it's, it's a detective from a show that I used to watch with Uncle Jim. He and I used to have just special time where we got to sit and watch TV together. And so it's that voice. It's that, that voice in my head. That, that leads me in the right direction. I just I just think of him with a detective voice is all. It, it, is it Columbo? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Good luck. If she won't tell me who it is. Oh goodness. Oh, it's, it's 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 not it's not real. It's 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 embarrassing. <laughs> Real or not, it's 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 helped keep you alive. Yeah. Will you tell me if I guess? I mean, you've got to tell me someday, right? Maybe, maybe someday. 
come on, there's, there's some people who I think would really like to meet you. This is my friend Hannah. You're gonna love her. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm, I'm Lily. Hi, uh, Tristan. Mm. Welcome to Point Mystic. We've been waiting for you. Frank runs the harbor office, and he also is an amazing oil painter. Amy runs the museum. I would love to introduce you to Lily Hello. and Tristan. Hello. 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 Hi, nice Welcome home. Nice to meet you. This is my friend Malcolm. Hello. It's really nice to yeah, meet you. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the holiday that's being celebrated right now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Eric. Welcome to town. Hi, I'm Hannah. Welcome. Happy homecoming. I feel very welcome. This feels like home. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. There's never a bad time to find your way to Point Mystic, but you will never find a more welcoming day of the year to find this place than homecoming. Nobody in the historical society knows how the holiday tradition started here or how it got its name, but it goes back to the very beginnings of this town over a hundred years ago. It's a holiday not unlike the homecoming traditions in other towns across America. There's a town dance and a football game. There's celebrations and dinners and decorations hanging everywhere, from lampposts and flower boxes, and set beside all of the muraled front doors of the town. Little bundles of sticks of all shapes and sizes, not unlike the structures that the children build in the woods. From the lighthouse to the bay, to the farthest reaches of the town, Marguerite gave Lily and Tristan the tour that she once gave me when I first laid eyes on Point Mystic. I really enjoy all the uh, architecture in the town. Yeah. I don't know the town pays real close attention to their doors, it seems like. They're all so pretty and decorative with fancy knobs and, and, and it's just, it looks really homey knowing that you can come home to a, a really pretty door. It does. Thank you. Really feels like home. This has been a great experience. Like, wow, thanks. If we keep going, there's, uh, there's the mermaid house and, uh, and it's like the door has scales. Scales? <laughs> That's kind of cool. On our way past the harbor front, we pass someone I'd never seen before. An artist with windswept gray hair, painting on the docks like many artists do. I heard them call out to Lily and Tristan as we passed. It took you long enough. It's about time you got here. Have we met? Lily and Tristan stopped, looking from the artist to the nearly finished painting and brilliant oil paints. Um, how? That, that is my vision. 
that? How how did you how did you get that? Is that is that me in the painting? Yeah, yeah, that's you, and 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 that's me, and that is the lighthouse, and that is the boat. That that's that's my vision. Now, isn't your vision just beautiful? Beneath the brilliant eye of the lighthouse, the lily in the painting was just pulling herself up onto the boat. Tristan slipping towards her, arms outstretched like they were preparing to embrace each other. The instant before the boat tips and they fall into the sea looks almost peaceful. The calm before the storm. Now you're here. Now it all begins. How? How? How did? How did? We looked around that long marina dock, but there was no one there. Since I first found this place, I'd always believed in something unexplainable out there. But it wasn't until I became a part of Point Mystic that I found something to believe in. I'm going to ask you to believe in something, too, at the end of all this. I said there were three things you need to understand about Point Mystic. The third and final thing that you need to understand is this. Why it's calling us here. That's the mystery. No one knows the answer. I suspect not even the Lighthouse Sisters. But if you can hear my voice, then this is where I'm going to truly ask you to take this journey into the unknown with me. I'm not going to explain where Point Mystic is, but I won't have to. If you watch for the signs and listen to your heart and let yourself become lost, you will not wander. None of us who found Point Mystic knows why we were called here or where this is going. If you decide to accept the call and find us, I'm afraid that what's to come will not be easy. But you will be home, and you will not be alone. Wake up, the only echoes in my house. I want to share something special with you. For the first time ever, Point Mystic has opened to crowdfunding. If you love the show and want to support our storytellers, cast, and crew, 
on Patreon, PayPal, and other crowdfunding platforms. Please visit us at pointmystic.org slash community. You can gain access to early releases, bonus episodes, and special patron-only content. There really is a secret of Point Mystic, one that you can be a part of. I'm Christopher Reynaga. The story for this episode, The Secret of Point Mystic Part 6, Homecoming, was written and produced by myself, with story development and editing by Marguerite Croft. Anita Busiglio is the voice of Lily. Chris Plowden is the voice of Tristan. Marguerite Croft is the voice of herself. Our Town Welcome featured the voices of On, Eric, Hillary, James, Jana, Jason, Logan, Paul, and many others, with Deborah Addington as the mysterious artist. Next time on Point Mystic, we look into evidence of a radio signal originating from a place of miracles, both great and terrible, as we explore the price that was paid by all the crooked saints, featuring Maggie Steve Otter. Stay with us. Thank you for calling the Point Mystic Radio hotline at 305-MYSTIC-0. If you have supernatural or unexplainable phenomena to report, or would like to share your journey to find Point Mystic, please share your story with us after the beep. I wasn't originally near the coast. I wasn't originally near any body of water. I was originally in the middle of Georgia. And the end of the road wasn't where the beginning of the road thought it was going. And then I saw the town. I saw the water. I saw the lighthouse. I'd finally found it. <laughs>